0: Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, and welcome to this week's FX Podcast. I'm Mike Seymour, and this week we're going to be looking at what, well, it's really interesting development in the area of cameras, but not your father's camera. I'm joined by John Montgomery, who uh, who led this. John, you've been talking to Lytros. Yeah,
1: it's uh, pretty amazing. It has the potential for being an incredibly uh, groundbreaking camera with huge implications for vfx and post workflows um and like uh other Lightro cameras in the past uh utilizes a uh, panoptic technology to create uh light fields and it's wow it's 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 almost sci-fi we'll have to wait and see the images of course how they look and stuff right proof in the pudding but wow um incredible news so
0: let's just set this up because i wrote an article a little while ago about the Lytros emerge which is the um, sort of vr camera but this isn't that right this is a of a whole nother camera.
1: Yeah, this is, this is designed as effectively a cinema camera, uh, not VR related, uh, something that would replace say a red camera or an Alexa, but give you a wide range of possibilities in what you can accomplish with the end result using image processing technology, computational photography in post to do things like change depth of field, frame rate, camera position, link multiple camera moves together, um, carry along sensible metadata through post. It's, um, it's uh, really a different beast uh, from the VR camera and uh, even the original Lytro camera, which I think Mike, both you and I bought back in the day. Um, when, when yeah, it so we had a, and... we
0: had the small yeah the small camera, which of course would allow you to take a shot and then adjust, say, the depth of field or, or what was in focus in pose. That was like a small one. Then there was one after that, which was kind of like an SLR sort yeah. of sized rig. But the company seems to be moving really into professional imaging now because the VR one that they announced that I did the story about um, is certainly not cheap. And this new system is very much a sort of a professional high-end kit. In fact, it, it needs more than just – it's not just like a point-and-shoot in any sense,
1: is it? No, it's not. It's a whole uh, gear setup from the camera itself, which is quite large, six feet long, actually. Uh, it needs to be that uh, due to the – um, half a meter sensor and uh, obviously the optics that are needed for a planoptic camera uh, but it comes with a data recorder and conversion software and cable it's very much it uh, at this release and probably for the foreseeable future it's uh, effectively a, a turnkey system that uh, productions would rent um, starting at about $125,0. dollars. Um, but it does open up some significant possibilities in post as you'll hear in the podcast uh, with john
0: well just before we get to that podcast we would just like to um, if i was on a normal podcast I'd say we'd just like to have a word from our sponsors but our sponsors are actually us um, so just bear with us as we as we just say that like while we're going to be jumping to that interview in a second we also want to flag the fact that of course the, exactly this kind of stuff VR stuff um, you know new camera tech uh, stuff to do with how camera tech merges into post-production is exactly the kind of stuff that you can yourself learn about in our FX PhD uh courseware. and John that's had a radical uh, sort of change of approach it's made it a lot cheaper more accessible Just give us the quick um, heads up on what people can expect from the new FX PhD.
1: Yeah, well, basically what we've done is we've removed the distinction of terms. We no longer have this idea of four times a year. We have a time that you join and you you select from a variety of courses. We have switched, really based upon uh, popular requests to make it more flexible for uh, artists to join to a monthly subscription model. And when you join, you get access to every single course that we have on offer on our courses page that you see. Um, and right now that's uh, well over a hundred courses and Mike, we just added two years worth of background fundamentals last week to it uh, by popular demand. That was our number one request right out of the gate. Um, so for starting at $79 a month, uh, you get access to all of the courses we have offer for for streaming. And then for $99 a month, you could actually get download versions of it uh, along with the project uh, files when they're available. So again, it's a big difference. It's, uh, uh, provides access to all the courses. We're going to be bringing out new courses over time instead of just launching them four times a year. We're going to be releasing them continually over the year. And I think it's going to be great. And the, uh, the reaction from everyone uh, has been really fantastic, I think.
0: Yeah, that's really uh, had a really good uplift. And I'm a little bit flattered that uh, people are so keen for background fundamentals, but uh, thanks for that. And in fact, um, I released a new background fundamentals there by what, last week, I think it was. Um yeah. The other thing that we've got happening over at FX Guide, i just to take a, a moment to flag this to you, is um, we talked in the past a little bit about uh, the Insider Program. Every, it seems like, John, every four years, we do a major push on our FX Insider Program, which is your opportunity to basically support FX Guide. Now, in thanks for that support. Depending on how much uh, your generosity can extend, we'll uh, give you access to a whole range of additional stories, um, podcasts, uh, videos, a bunch of other stuff. And even if you really become a major supporter, uh, we'd buy your beer. Well, we can't actually buy them a beer, John, but we can certainly give them the beer glass to drink the beer out of.
1: Yeah, exactly. We have uh, two uh, very special limited edition pint glasses, etched uh, pint glasses. Uh, but uh, a lot of fun. There's the uh, Render Pass Porter and the HDRI PA. Ha ha. I don't know how to say that. Anyway.
0: John would have definitely made our own FX Guide wheat beers if he'd been allowed, but yes, uh, yes, we thought the glasses worked better. Anyway, if you want to check that out and support this podcast and the other work we do at FX Guide, please go to fxguide.com and you'll see the slash uh, FX Insider link from there uh, where you can uh, support. And even five bucks would uh, be greatly appreciated as part of the... uh, ongoing program we have to bring you stuff here at fx guide but now john where, where was this interview that you did recorded and and how did you get access
1: well we got a heads up uh, for the announcement uh, as you're listening to this, this is after the announcement at nab but um they're really keen to actually share uh, what this camera means uh to the visual effects audience and the post-production workflow so um had the opportunity to talk with john karafin who's leads the uh development of this the light field uh, camera and uh, really great to sit down with him for about an hour and uh, get uh, get inside and get a bit more than what you get in the press release and uh, the marketing stuff uh, related to the camera it was, it was actually a lot of fun to chat with him
0: Alright, let's uh, go to that interview recorded by John slightly earlier, thanks so much
1: Why don't we start out with kind of a broad overview give me the the nickel pitch give me the pitch of what uh, Lytro Cinema is and we'll go from there
2: Lytro Cinema is the first fully integrated light field cinema capture system. And the camera is just part of the entire solution. It comes with not only the capture technology, but also with the post-production software and tools, the storage, the processing horsepower, and then finally, of course, all of the methods to render out the content and master it for whatever the distribution uh, happens to be. So the camera itself is the highest resolution video sensor that has ever been designed. At least as far as we're aware, Mm -hmm. maybe something in uh, some other country in some secret room somewhere. Uh, But it is a full 755 megapixels of raw capture that enables us to fully realize the holographic image. And the camera itself is able to do things that are really only enabled by Lakefield itself, and I'd be happy to dig into those details as well.
1: Yeah, let's. We'll get into some of the technical details more specifically about the hardware and so forth, and kind of help people understand why it's an integrated system, uh, especially this initial release, because you're dealing with a tremendous amount of data, obviously. But yeah, let's let's dive in. What is light I mean, I got. I think what was it? Twenty twelve, maybe. I got the the when the first consumer light drill cameras came out because we've been big followers of planopic lenses and light field. Um, and uh, so, actually, if you could just kind of give an overview of the. kind of the science behind what light field is and and the the camera, that'd be great.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's lots of ways to capture a light field. And the easiest way to think of a light field is it's multiple points in space that are acquiring the rays of light. So technically speaking, a single camera, a camera with one lens and one sensor, is capturing a light field. But of course, that is uh, what we call an N of 1. Uh, meaning you have one aperture and you're capturing one sample from that light field. And you can look at a pair of stereo cameras as being an N of two. So a two by one array, which is two samples from within that light field. But the more samples from the light field you actually acquire, the more accurate your ray tracing actually becomes. And there's some fundamental ratios that you can look at in terms of how many of these sampling points do you need to fully reconstruct the light rays of your scene Depending on your specific application, so the way that the lentro technology works is you have a main lens, and that lens has to have certain characteristics in order to acquire the light field appropriately. And then at the actual focus position, at the of where the main focal length is actually converging the light rays, you have something that we call a micro lens array. And you saw that on our first generation camera, the little thing that looked like a like a butter stick. And then we had the Illum that was uh, released after that. Those two uh, generations of technology both had lens arrays in front of the imager. And what the lens array allows you to achieve is, simply put, it allows you to then separate the rays of light into angular components. And with the angular components, you're able to then reproject the rays of light through the lens into space and have a full volumetric understanding of your scene. So in the latest generation of Elytro Cinema technology, we have taken the concepts and the principles of the consumer cameras that we've released, and we're now bringing it to the larger professional audience. And in order to do that, you have much higher resolution requirements, you have much higher dynamic range requirements, you obviously now have video requirements. Uh, So in order to achieve that, inside of the camera, there are literally millions of lenses. So that's one of the things that is the enabler of how the technology works because you have all the light going through the lens, traveling and hitting the surface of the microlens array, breaking into those angular components. And then through a post-process computation, you can reconstruct your image very similar to how a 3D renderer will ray trace the, the light through a scene.
1: Yeah. And that actually speaks to what you mentioned before, the largest sensor that's been made. And because one of the issues with... the uh... Uh, the micro lens array is that um, sensor a small sensor size you end up with computationally a fairly small image um, especially in the original Lytro camera you know it's almost postage stamp in size and what you want to do is actually deliver something that is obviously suitable for visual effects theatrical production and end up with i think you said a a a really good high quality 4k image as an end result from this process
2: That's correct. So we have um, built the technology upon the premise that you need a native output resolution of 2K or 4K. And with this technology, we're actually able to achieve that kind of resolution and image quality, um, really support those needs and those requirements. And you're right. When you look at the first two generations, they were much lower resolution because when you look at the actual sensor technology, uh, you physically didn't have enough pixels in order to reconstruct a full uh, 2K or 4K image. And that's where we went to this next leap in, well, what do you actually need to do in order to achieve this? And you start to throw out the rules of the consumer market. You start to really look at, well, let's rebuild this from the ground up. Let's look at what is the storage that you actually need? What is the data streaming you actually need? And how many pixels do you really need to make this into a completely professional technology because fundamentally, uh, we believe this is the next generation of imaging technology. And we want to be able to help articulate and show off the compelling benefits that you can do with a lead field in this kind of an ecosystem.
1: Yeah, and it's important to note, as you mentioned, that the, the effectively, I mean, over of the line, but there are two steps of process. You have the image acquisition where you get the images actually recorded, and then there's a uh, computational photography aspect of this where the image is actually computed based upon the parameters that, well, you desire, which is potentially changing things like depth of field or dynamic range and things like that. So why don't we start working through the process, but let's start with the hardware first. What What is the actual hardware um, that makes up the acquisition part on set of the Lightro Cinema?
2: Sure. Uh, so one of the things that we've been very sensitive to and we've had discussions with a large number of cinematographers and directors and studios uh, as well as the entire visual effects community is we wanted to make sure that the camera itself didn't fundamentally change the way that people want to work on set. So the camera comes with obviously all of the light field optics and everything that goes into acquiring that kind of uh, data rate from the camera head. And we provide uh, a focus controller and aperture controller uh, there is a focal length controller as well in order to ensure that when you are looking at the display onset in real time, you're actually seeing one set of creative decisions. And those creative decisions are actually then rendered out as a quick time file or uh, MXF, depending on the production mm-hmm. itself. And you get that as a real time file that then can go immediately into editorial. So you can think of that almost like the, uh, the CDL, so when you, when you have color profiles that are being applied on set, we now have a length field lookup that is applied on set. And that is just one of any number of choices that you could have made, but that is part of the overall architecture is to ensure that the roles, the responsibilities, the way that we like to work in production has been maintained through the hardware itself. But just because you created that one specific lookup, doesn't mean you're baked into that decision. So all of those decisions are streamed as metadata keyframes in the actual raw imaging format. So from the camera itself, you have the the light field sensor, you've got the monitors, the same things that you would expect on any traditional cinema camera. You also then have an entire server architecture that all of the data will stream to. So that server architecture comes with the camera itself. Um, it can be placed uh, up to 100 meters away from the camera, and that's in order to ensure the integrity of the data. And those are placed into sound-mitigated uh, enclosures, so you can actually put them right up in the video village or put them into uh, somewhere on your sound stage, depending on what the needs of that production uh, happen to be. And that architecture allows you to do the data acquisition. It allows you to do all the data processing and all the data storage. So we want to make sure that from the end to end in production, you're actually able to do all of the data acquisition and all the processing with one fully integrated solution. So that is fundamentally what comes with the the actual technology on set.
1: Okay, so with a 755 megapixel image um, and the fact that you are actually doing um, some high frame rate stuff that you could touch on, I mean, it's a significant amount of data that you're getting um, off the sensor and onto something to store, isn't it?
2: That's absolutely right, and uh, we think it's an awesome amount of data. (laughs) Uh, So the actual camera is able to achieve up to 300 frames per second at 755 megapixels. Uh, We generally advise to record at what we call the high bandwidth mode, which is starting at 120 frames per second, and we'll go into that, but that is what enables us to unlock a number of new features through uh, some very interesting uh, sampling uh, concepts that we've implemented as part of the light field technology. Uh, but with those data rates, we do run everything over a uh, basically, it's a fiber optic tether between the camera and the server architecture. And that's what allows us to maintain up to uh, 400 gigabytes of data transfer per second. Now, of course, that is something that is up to the production. What is the frame rate that is required? It's fully variable fully controllable as part of the uh, as the UI, the interface of the camera itself. Uh, but the servers are built upon the ability to capture at those data rates without any latency and then also process very efficiently. So the, the, the physical amount of data that you are capturing is it feels very lightweight to the production because it's built from the ground up in order to optimize and streamline that process. It feels very similar to capturing with any other camera.
1: Now you mentioned you're trying to maintain the things that the cinematographers are used to. And I, I think it's actually really critical that you involve cinematogra- cinematographers in this process because you right, need right, them right. in your court to adopt this technology on set. You want them on set asking for it or in pre-production asking right. for it. But there is something right. that is missing that most cinematographers are used to. And that's, well, it's not missing, but lens choices, right? Um, it's mm. not, it's not approaching the same way. It's uh, uh DOP is not going to pick a particular lens, right, to actually use in this situation. How is that process kind of overcome in production on set?
2: You know, that's a great question. So it's one of the areas that we focus quite a bit on with the directors and the cinematographers and quite frankly with producers as well. Uh, So it is correct that this is a unique optical format. It is a very unique optical system. But... When you capture with the light field, you actually have what we consider—it's almost like the unity gain from the audio world, where you have that perfect <laughs> level. It's—it's it's a lot like that for the imaging world. You have the representation of all the volume, all those rays of light. So what it actually enables us to do, and this is something that will be included with a future release. Um, so it's in our product roadmap to make sure we get it right. We're working with directors and cinematographers. Uh, But the ability for us to take any existing lens, so take some lens from maybe the 1800s or some some old cook lens that has these characteristics that a particular director just really loves and it it softens the image in a way that helps them tell their story or that's just the aesthetic that they really want to use on a particular scene or film. We could actually take that lens, we could characterize it in our lab so we understand how the rays of light flow through that lens and how it produces certain aberrations and certain aesthetic um, uh, characteristics. Mm -hmm. And then we can, through software computation, take the rays of light from the light field and reproject them through that computational virtual lens and provide software controls to give more or less of that lens parameter. So it's really giving you the ability to take a, a mastered image from the light field and create any optical look based upon those characterized lenses. So we're getting uh, a large number of inquiries in terms of the ability to do that so you can record the content once and then not really dig in any one particular look or any one particular uh, aesthetic and have that complete flexibility as part of the post-process.
1: Now, what about on set? Is there a way to kind of at least pre-visualize that? I imagine you can have some kind of preview of depth of field, but what about other choices?
2: So that, that's, uh, that gets into some very serious ray tracing. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: it does. <laughs> um, so we, we do envision that uh, as we continue to evolve the technology, we'll be able to do that on a, uh, a couple of select frames where we want to process and just show a look frame, if you will. Right. Uh, and then in future generations, we'll be working towards different GPU optimizations and potential FPGA implementations where you can do far more of this computation in real time. But for the initial launch, it will be much more of a post-process to be able to see and visualize. But on set, you can look at a handful of those look frames to make sure that it is matching that artistic design.
1: And what about lighting? Are there different lighting techniques that need to be used? Does it use way more light? Uh, Do you have to uh, light a scene much brighter than um, you would ordinarily? What are those considerations?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So the actual sensor itself is actually quite light efficient. Um, it does have an ISO that is between two and, uh, 200 and 800, depending on the gain parameters. And this is a true measurement, uh, which is actually quite different than some of the measurements that are published for uh, other systems. And what that means is that now you're reliant upon the optical characteristics of the system. So for the first generation of the technology you do need more light in order to enable high frame rate capture, but that is actually consistent with any camera. So if you compare 24 frames per second to 120 or 300 frames per second, you actually do need quite a bit more light. But that is a one-to-one comparison between the uh, electro-cinema capture system and Mm -hmm. any traditional camera that would be used on set. Uh, The optics itself, in order to maximize the depth of field capabilities, you can think of it as something close to the light requirement of an f11 f12 lens okay. so it is from a speed standpoint uh much slower in terms of the light transmission um but that is something that is within the scope of the lighting that is traditionally provided on set so it does need a bit more but it's nothing that is crazy it's not like we need to do uh, 15 second exposures you can and you'll see on the first film that we've created, obviously, we're able to capture at high frame rates and with the full light field optical system. Uh, so it just requires a little bit different planning on the front.
1: Now, and, it's, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that initial release, this is a studio-only system. And it sounds in large part that it's. it seems, at least initially, it's sensible to keep it in a controlled situation, which I imagine would be a large part of the decision process regarding that.
2: Yes, yeah, so, uh, that's, a, that's a great point. The, the ability to use a camera of this size really is very well suited for the studio environment, where you have much more controllable lighting, much more controllable uh, space allocation. But we have built it to make sure that it is, in fact, able to be taken out into a live-action set. Um, so that's where we have the physical length of the tether being as long as it is, with the signal integrity completely maintained. So you could put this out in the field. Uh, it would take you some time in order to make sure that it's set up appropriately, and make sure that you have all the right components and everything that you need, um, and you place the, the basically all the servers wherever that they're required. But aside from that, it really was built with the studio in mind.
1: What what is actually the physical size? I joked the other day that it was it looks like my little Lytro camera that would, did like the reverse Ant Man thing that it would just got um, expanded up in size. What what are the size and dimensions of it?
2: So it is, uh, we lovingly call the camera Zilla. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, that's really uh, because of obviously the size of the system and the sheer strength and magnitude. And you also have z for depth. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it is a larger camera in this first generation. But we always like to highlight that anything that is the first generation, the first of its kind, is always larger. Um, and all, all the studios that we speak with, uh, they always joke about the uh, the Technicolor uh, three-strip uh, camera, the, mm-hmm. the first generation of it. You see the original pictures, and you see that people could literally fit inside of that camera. Uh, so we always like to highlight that on the front end. So the first generation of the system is in fact quite large. Uh, it is dolly-mounted, and it will include on the commercial release an entire motion-controlled uh, stage that you're actually able to move it with complete freedom so you can move, and it, it's uh, not like you have a hand-operated dolly. Um, and the physical camera head is approximately six feet long. So it is a big camera, especially when you compare it to uh, something like an Arri Alexa, which is a beautiful right. system and uh, but the the benefit of this is that it is acquiring that full holographic image, and the physical imager inside of this camera, and this is something that we will be able to actually uh, have at any be so people are able to see it. The actual image surface is a half a meter wide. We like to really highlight that stress that that it is uh, something that is just uh, beyond what uh, is traditionally capable and um, that in 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 that respect, that is really defining what the, the optics need to do, the distance that the optics need to travel, and how big the physical body of the system needs to be. One really important note that we always like to uh, make sure everybody is uh, aware of is we're always working towards scaling the system, making it handholdable and portable. And that is in fact in development. And it is uh, once you get the technology right. In terms of making sure we've hit the right benchmarks, we've been able to release the features and hit the right um, requirements for the cinematographers and for the directors, scaling the technology like this just becomes a matter of time and money. And that's one of the things that we always like to make sure that uh, it's part of the story of the system is that this is the first generation, and it's already working towards becoming something that is battery-operated and portable, and we just have uh, that in our roadmap.
1: Well, it's actually really impressive, but I think the next question, I think we've covered the hardware pretty well, is like, why the hell would I want to use a six-foot camera on set? There've obviously got to be some really good (laughs) benefits for doing that, and there actually are. (laughs) So creatively, can you speak to, um, before we dive into the post-process, actually, what are the creative benefits and the post-benefits for actually uh, filming with, a acquiring with this camera?
2: So I would ask the question of, well, why wouldn't you want to use this? <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, so uh, in terms of the creative capabilities, the, the, the way that I like to look at this is that it is a step towards completely virtualizing your camera. And as you move forward and you look, let's say, 10 years back, and you count the the actual number of shots that were traditionally a visual effect in your average feature film, we have this exponential uh, growth curve of how many shots are actually in the film that are completely based upon some form of visual effects. And the the actual amount of money that's being spent on the visual effects really doesn't change that dramatically. So the price of the visual effect is actually dropping, but the amount of shots on a film that are required continue to increase. And that is actually really only possible through technological innovation and those innovations are the things that allow us to do more with less time and less budget. So from the light field standpoint, if you imagine that you now have all of these rays of light, you can make these decisions creatively during an editorial process. Uh, You can then also, if you wanted to, make a decision on set and then only do technical fixes if that was so desired, but then still gain all of the visual effects capabilities. And that is really dependent upon the cinematographer and the director. How do they want to work with the light field itself? So from a creative standpoint, if you can imagine that every decision that I traditionally would have had to lock in at the time of capture, so things like your exact focus point, or things like your depth of field and your aperture, or even your frame rate; those are all things that are now completely computational. So during that editorial process, you may find new creative ways to tell your story that otherwise were just fundamentally a limitation of how you needed to capture on set.
1: So you can actually do things like obviously adjust uh, depth of field, adjust your focus point within uh, the field, but you can also, you also have some significant um, movement changes as well. Correct. Um, in adjusting yeah. the image after the fact.
2: That's correct. So uh, we, we face the optics of the system in order to accommodate the uh, really any interactional required for stereoscopic production. So you get, Uh, up to approximately 100 millimeters of stereoscopic interaxial parallax between your two virtual cameras, as well as every position in between. So you can actually shift your perspective in the standpoint of true optics, as well as if you project your points into space, then you can create new virtual camera moves, where as long as you captured all of the subjects appropriately, you can actually then change the way that the camera moves through space. obviously, with that approach, if you have occlusions that weren't captured by the camera, then you do have to go through and then do traditional visual effects to fill in those uh, occlusion gaps. But we'll show a couple of examples at NEB, and we had a couple of previous examples that we'll have online, where you're really easily able to then create the virtual camera and then create new camera moves without any real work. It's now just a matter of what is the artistic intent of that particular scene.
1: Right, so you could uh, virtually in post actually move the camera fairly significantly. I mean, you could move it a couple feet to the right. Um, of course, you would have to patch certain areas, as you mentioned, because the occlusion, the background, would be hidden potentially by the talent or an object in the scene. But there is that possibility that's to perfect. make that happen. That absolutely. Now you mentioned some well, that's benefits. Some pretty cool okay. Yeah, so Sorry, go ahead. no, I was just gonna say you mentioned some benefits actually of running at a higher frame rate. Um you touched on that earlier. What what would be the benefits of running at the 120 frames per second um rate that you suggested uh as a default earlier?
2: So when you capture in this high bandwidth mode, there are certain things that we're able to achieve that are just very challenging or would be considered a visual effect for Uh, feature film production. So one of the most noticeable things is the ability to create any arbitrary frame rate and any arbitrary uh, shutter angle. So that's not to be just confused with blending frames together. We actually have a very complete understanding of how the rays of light travel, not only through space, but over time. And those are the capabilities that allow us to render out multiple distribution formats in order to say, Let's do a true native 24-frame-per-second release at 180-degree shutter, for example. And it would be as if you made that exact decision at the time of capture. And then alternatively, if you wanted to do a 48-frame-per-second release or 120-frame-per-second release, you could do anything in between and above what the native capture frame rate actually was achieving. We can also then go well beyond the integration time or the actual shutter angle. So uh, if you have a fully open shutter on your traditional camera, uh, close to 360 degrees being fully open, we can actually go beyond that. We can go up to 720, 1,440. (laughs) We can do the integration time that's the equivalent of multiple frames as if that was the integration for that one specific frame. And the way that we're able to achieve that is through a number of different processing and actual imaging techniques that are both part of the hardware and part of the software technology. Um, And basically the effect of that is you get the perfect distribution format with one mastered piece of light field content, or you can use all these things now artistically. So you look at something like Saving Private Ryan. They did a very narrow shutter angle on certain war scenes, and it created a very impactful aesthetic with that strobing motion and very sharp, gritty uh, content. Uh, Or you could go to something that is more magical, like Lord of the Rings, things that are much more uh, uh, aesthetically uh, blurred, if you will, that have a much wider, uh, wide-open shutter angle. And you look at even things like The Hobbit, where they had very certain aesthetics that they released the film with. And with the light field capture, you would actually be able to re-render that natively to achieve a high frame rate uh, piece of content as well as a standard 24 frame per second piece of content and vary that shutter angle so you don't have to make any compromises depending on how you're going to release the film itself. Um, Even beyond that, in terms of when you're capturing in this high bandwidth mode, by fundamentally eliminating all of the artifacts associated with motion blur, and I should say, Uh, mitigating the majority of the motion blur artifacts from the native capture. You're able to do things with the volume itself where you only have one position in space um, as opposed to having motion blur, which is, from any visual effects standpoint, much more complex to, to actually achieve a full composite. So this enables you to actually then create your visual effects on a much sharper image and through the first production, we are able to really highlight and show that by compositing in a uh, basically an all-in-focus image with um, virtually no motion blur, the composites are just that much more efficient. And then through that process, we then are able to create all those CG assets or all the virtual assets from a synthetic virtual production into the light field domain and actually convert everything into the 4D light field so that everything will actually refocus and gain all of those same benefits. So there's a number of things that you're able to achieve with that high bandwidth mode that allows visual effects to be more efficient in addition to the distribution formats that that actually enables.
1: And that's a, also the shutter angle and the, and the look is actually a critical aspect too for adoptions from cinematographers and directors as well because while they're acquiring in a very different way than they have in the past up at this point, it's absolutely critical that you actually can achieve that same kind of organic natural look that you get um, that they're used to achieving on
2: set. Absolutely. That's a great point. Everything that we have done to the system is an attempt to make sure that whatever artistic intent that is desired can be achieved and then also re-rendered out for different aesthetic uh, choices. So you're not locked into that one fixed decision that may have been the original initial artistic intent, but then during editorial again, you'd be able to really play with that space and play with the content to figure out how to make the best possible decision to tell the story.
1: Okay, so let's go ahead and dive into that post now. Um, I think we still have time on this, which is great. I appreciate it. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I guess there are two different ways, or I'm sure there are multiple different ways you can utilize the footage, but let's take a look at kind of two basic ways. One one might be a procedure where you've acquired all um, your principal photography, and you're just going to want to output, say, 2K or 4K images to use in post. And, you know, the standard mm-hmm. delivering of EXR files in post. And then there's another alternate workflow where you can actually utilize, um, almost live, so to speak, you can utilize the original um, source data and information and metadata to actually almost composite in this light field or 3D environment. But let's, let's touch on the workflow first of the more traditional post workflow. How does that work? I've The shoot's done. I've got all this stuff on this ginormous <laughs> array of disks. What do I do next?
2: So there's a number of different um, methods that you can have those decisions made. And it really is, uh, it's interesting that it really is up to the the, the, the individual production or the uh, producer of that production, how they need to manage the schedule. Uh, so it's, it's pretty flexible in terms of how and when and where you would actually do this. Generally speaking, though, the way to think of it is you finish your shoot and you can do this daily uh, if you wanted to, uh, or do this all at a... Basically, a light field grading session. And that could be done right after production or anytime that it makes sense uh, if it wants to wait until after the, uh, the actual first rough cut edit has been identified. Uh, and that first rough cut could either use the decisions that are made from that session or actually use the, uh, the files that were generated on set that have mm-hmm. the graded uh, decisions baked in. Uh, so that, that those are the two different methods that you can have um, in terms of from a scheduling standpoint. But then what you're able to do is have the director and or the cinematographer in the session and review every clip in the uh, editorial timeline, go into that file, and then be able to articulate and move and modify all of the light field decisions that could potentially be made until you find that you have uh, created the virtual camera decisions that optimize that scene for that particular edit. And then from that point, once you go through all the different shots, and it's a very efficient process, you render out every shot like you traditionally would for uh, further use in post-production or visual effects. And then the existing workflow is not impacted because you're just working with the standard 2K or 4K files And we can render into really any format. So we've had DPS requested, we've had EXR requested. It really is specific to the actual studio or the production itself. Uh, And then along with that content, we can also provide a significant amount of metadata that's embedded into the actual uh, file itself. And that data can include, uh, well, really anything that's requested, but all of the virtual camera uh, things that were used on set. So it's including the focal length and the ISO, all of the things that we would really want to have go to a visual effects or post facility, as well as we can provide a normals pass, we can provide an XYZ coordinate pass, we can provide a depth map pass, and there's a number of different assets that are able to be provided based upon the output format. So if it's 2K or 4K or stereoscopic, we can make sure that all of these passes are rendered out with those specific decisions in mind.
1: Now, And that you would just... be really
2: the... Go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say, you just kind of gloss over something that's actually really, really important. I want to go back to it. And that's, uh, you just said output a normals pass, a normals pass for a 2D image. I mean, that's one of the huge benefits, isn't it, though, of acquiring footage this way, that you actually have a effectively a construction of the 3D scene.
2: That, that's correct. It's, it's based upon the volume of the capture that you're able to actually discern the what's all the angular components. Including the surface normals in addition to the XYZ coordinate of each pixel. And that is one of the things that can just immediately be handed out, and it's just a byproduct of the actual light field process.
1: And that actually brings up really interesting points about relighting and post grading and things like that, that you can actually almost see grade in 3D, so to speak.
2: That's correct. Uh, So there is some uh, software packages out there for DI that actually already enable that kind of a process, Um, and we can provide the assets in whatever format that's required for ingest. Uh, in addition to that, if you work in a visual effects environment, obviously, you can project your points and perform all the relighting or do just a surface normals relighting pass uh, with a standard workflow.
1: Now, how is the metadata package along? One of our pet peeves, and I know Mike talks about it a lot, is the loss of metadata in post. There's so much data acquired on set right, right. that never right. makes its way to post. Um, how are you handling that with your um, – I mean, obviously, it depends on the image format, but uh, in a sensible right. production, what would you right. recommend
2: So right now, our recommendation is always to go to an uh, an EXR file uh, that maintains a huge amount of flexibility. It's a great format. And we do have uh, a certain amount of uh, compression that's built in that is a virtually lossless light field compressor to make sure that the files are as light as possible. But inside of that file contains all the metadata so that frame to frame, you're not losing any of that data. Uh, And that's how we actually hand everything off. And that is consistent with either handing off the flattened 2K or 4K frames, or it's also embedded in the raw light field frames. So that is, we totally agree that the more data that we're able to hand into posts and into visual effects, the better the output quality and the more efficient that the artist can work with that that material. And ideally, you don't lose that metadata. And that's one of the goals. Obviously, once we hand it off, there's (laughs) only... So much that we can do to control the, <laughs> uh, the stream of the metadata, but it will be embedded into the uh, the native files that are provided from the Lightfill cache,
1: and, and that's a big start, I think. Um, okay, so that's kind of a more traditional, I guess you'd say traditional way of thinking about things in post and dealing with the imagery in post, <laughs> but um, where some really interesting things happen, I think, is actually in the ways that in many instances, you can kind of keep a lot of that data live that you've acquired on set. How how does that work? Um, we have, let's say, we're, we've got um, we're going to be compositing Nuke, which is a you know relatively probably obvious choice of where you might be compositing. Um, how would you work mm-hmm. with the footage in that situation? We've got some three D that we want to integrate, uh, do some compositing. How would that work?
2: That's another great question, and it's uh, it going to become an, a, an evolving. Uh, visual effects pipeline because it is now working in a 4D planopic domain, and what we have done is we're actually launching at NAB with our plugins that are built into Nuke because that is one of the it's obviously uh, you know the visual effects standard good starting hosting. point, yeah, right. And we're going to be launching after that um, because we're continuing to work through uh, the actual evolution of the API into other software packages, including software and different DI packages and editorial packages. Uh, But Nuke is a great start for what we're looking to achieve with uh, our first productions. And the way that you work with the data is it again is an EXR file. It contains the 4D image and if you look at the image and you can use any piece of software as long as you can um, uh, review in the EXR file, it will look like a microlens disk image. So you might have seen some Uh, micro views of what a micro lens looks like. And that is fundamentally what the image itself looks like. So it is a readable file that you can use into any piece of software. And we strongly believe that uh, we don't want to create proprietary formats. And we just want to make sure that the content can get out there. Uh, So when you have the file, you have that 4D file, and you have all the metadata that's embedded from the uh, point in time and capture, then we also now have the light field. Processing plugins that you basically connect up your node, and it will provide you with the ability, based upon the metadata, to then reproject all of the rays of light and create your final 2D image. The other things that we are enabling is the ability to then render out CG elements that can be then converted in Nuke into a 4D light field element. And that allows you to then composite completely in a 4D domain. And give you that complete flexibility that when you have your final piece of content, you're not actually limited to just a light field plate. You now can then integrate the virtual world and the live action world into that same light field domain. So the compositing process is really not that much different than what you would traditionally do. Uh, when you look at the output from the light field nodes, you actually see a 2D image but you do have full access to the entirety of the light field. So if you want to perform a 2D merge operation, there's really no difference there. If you want to do anything in the actual scene volume, actually project the rays of light into space, you have different methodologies for performing that, and you can do more of a composite in the actual 3D space itself. So there's a number of ways that you can interact with it, and the nodes allow for that uh, that flexibility. And even above and beyond that, we actually do provide one of the tools is something that we call the uh, light field camera tracker. And that is really one of the integral components to uh, optimizing the concept of the virtual production. So by virtue of having the light field and that dense data of all those rays of light, including in addition to that, we do have active scanning systems that are built directly into the, the capture hardware. We have the ability to create this virtual camera track that's down to the uh, sub-pixel accuracy of the actual virtual camera path that the camera would have moved on um, as you captured the scene on set. So with that virtual camera and now all of these 4D CG uh, virtual assets in combination with the live-action assets, you really do have that complete flexibility within the Nuke ecosystem to generate any final composite that you need without having really that much difference between the way that you would traditionally work and the way that you uh, would work with a light field.
1: How does keying and matting work within that environment?
2: That is a great question. Um, so the way that that works is effectively because you now have the, let's call it an air quotes, the all-in-focus image. Uh, And obviously, the refocusable range is defined by the actual optics of the system, and that's actually uh, part of the metadata that's provided while you're capturing on set. But everything within that range is completely in focus, and you're able to do what we call a depth screen. And we call it a depth screen because you do have all of that volumetric information that you can literally go in, and uh, we'll show some of this content as well, you can actually uh, choose a background plane, a foreground plane you can skew those planes depending on how you want that uh, that region to be defined and segment your image based upon the volume and then we run additional computations in order to extract out the edge information from that object that you've selected to produce a very accurate map. And that is something that we are really excited about that when you perform that you're able to then do basically green screen type work without actually the necessity of the green screen. So this is something that is then, once you create that from the all-in-focus image, you're able to create the actual um, map from the scene that is then um, created into a four-dimensional or a 4D alpha channel so that you're able to then work with just that isolated layer by itself, even within the 4D domain. So everything that we're building makes sure that it can go seamlessly between a two-dimensional image and then the 4D light field image without really any intermediate stages.
1: It's a good analogy. Instead of uh, what you're doing, instead of selecting a range of colors, you're selecting a range of depth, right? Um, because you know where those pixels reside, um, as a user, you're creating a depth range as opposed to color range.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: So, um, you know, um, call me a skeptic, but what about the keying quality? I mean, you know, usually when you're doing key, you have so many other adjustments and filtering and edge things you're dealing with. I mean, what, what have you found? I know your background you're obviously familiar with this, but, um, in practicality, um, how good is it?
2: I guess. So that's a really tough and awesome (laughs) question. (laughs) So, um, You know, uh, under complete disclosure, of course, there are always things that will require some form of cleanup. And our goal is, as we continue to evolve the technology, continue to refine all of the algorithms, that we will get to a place where there is very minimal cleanup that's required. Um, But the reality is, on certain shops, it is shockingly good. We have hair that we can extract out. We have very fine fishnet material that without doing any additional cleanup, any additional work is just completely based upon the depth and the uh, the additional extraction from the light field uh, itself. On other shots, you will find that there is some touch-up that's required just due to the accuracy of the um, the, the actual physical uh, depth of the scene itself. Right. Um, and those are the areas that require some form of um, intervention. And as we continue to work towards this as close to automation uh, goal as possible, that will continue to get better and better and better. So uh, across the entire range of shots that, we're, that we'll be showing off at NAB, um, quite a majority of them were really just implemented without much manual work. And then there were another handful of them that just required some little touch-up as you would do with any other green screen key itself.
1: How is that handled within, if you're working within a plug-in? Is that something that has to be taken out and then back in? Or how, how is that work to actually happen when you do have to do the touch-up?
2: That's a great question. So uh, basically the way that it works is that you have your tool in order to define that depth region, and then there is the next set of nodes that does the final computation. So in between those two steps, any manual work that needs to be defined is actually completed right there. So, once you have the full uh, identification of the region for the final uh, computation extraction, that's what plugs in and then defines the final map itself. And then, if there's any final touch ups that need to be uh, achieved, you, you can complete that at the final end of the tree in terms of the
1: Which node is phase. a standard 2D nuke node?
2: Yeah, with any for- just standard cleanup, you can use right. Rotopane if you wanted. Um, okay. Yeah, there's really.
1: No just trying to visualize work- the workflow. It's <laughs> hard.
2: Yeah, 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 it'll be, uh, so it, um, I'll be able to show off the entire uh, Nuke pipeline um, at energy as well. We'll be showing that interactively. Um, but the idea is that you work as much as you can in a standard 2D image pipeline, and then everything else is done behind the scenes within the Lightfield engine.
1: Okay, let me ask you a question. There's something that just came to mind, and we may have discussed it, but... Um, obviously people are very particular about picking a look on set or picking a depth of field. You talked about the daily session, potentially with the DOP Mm -hmm. and the director. Um, it sounds like, the visual effects artists would have infinite control of being able to actually adjust that in post. Um, do you have any way of dealing with that
2: or? That's another, that's another great one. Um, so yes. So there is obviously the question that comes up in terms of, Who has final control over the shot? And that same question has come up uh, when you look at the the DI uh, process, that in terms of that there's a certain decision that is made on set, but then through the editorial process and through uh, all the color grading, that decision then changes from the director and cinematographer to ultimately whoever's responsible at the end of post. So you get the same question that comes up for Lightfield, and we like to say with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) Um, Because the reality is you do have that much more flexibility and that much more control over the final image and the final creative look. But the way that we're working with the directors and the cinematographers is that uh, when we have the, the, the actual commercial release of the plugins, there will actually be a lock on certain decisions that the only way that you can unlock that decision is with um, basically administrative control so that you can provide the full leg field, all the visual effects benefits, but the actual keyframes of what decisions were made on set are virtually just grayed out. Uh, so that's one of the tools that we're making sure you have a lock on those creative decisions to really help ensure that nothing, let's just say accidentally changes from the creative intent of that scene. But you still, as an artist can gain the full benefit of being able to move through the life field and change your perspective and change your camera positions, knowing that the actual onset decision or the final decision made in dailies or wherever that, that happens to uh, fall through a particular production is the final decision that's made until there is some ability to or some decision to change that decision.
1: Yeah, because you want to have access to that full data, so you can do things that we were just talking about, such as pulling mats to um, extract and position things in space. Um, so, gotcha. one question I have is: It sounds like that there. This is probably a bit weightier than compositing um, with the standard, you know, two D images that we talked about earlier. Can you? Can you talk about that? I mean, is it um, more intense than say deep compositing and the kind of weight that the files bring with it? Uh, is it less? More? What? What um, have you found in uh, the production that you did
2: uh, regarding that? And so it's a great analogy to compare it to a deep image. Um, so the the thing with a deep image is that it is a bit less controlled than the light field image in terms of a file size. So with a light field, you have a fixed number of rays of light that we're acquiring. And with deep, depending on how you set up the actual renderer, could have an infinite number of Z samples. So that file can go from, let's say, hundreds of megabytes all the way through thousands of megabytes, depending on how you set up that particular, uh, that particular render. Uh, but it is kind of in that order of magnitude. But in terms of the way that you interact with the file, there are a number of things that we're doing uh, to make this as obviously lightweight as possible for the end uh, user of the content. And some of the things that we're doing is building, you can think of it like an online offline system where we have both a proxy mode as well as a full light field mode. And you look at that more like the CG workflow where you can do certain play blasts and you know that the image quality from the play blast is really more about making sure you got the right animation, you got the right looks, you got the right um, content in terms of how you want the, the actual image to be rendered out and then you have the final or any number of intermediate steps to get to the final ray trace for that uh, particular CG scene. So the workflow, even within Nuke, is very similar, that you have a proxy mode that you do the bulk of your work, the bulk of your animation, and that moves at the same speed as you would with any traditional 2K or 4K file. And then when you go into the full 4D or the full light build mode, it is a bit more computation, and that's why we're providing quite a bit of the server architecture Uh, in addition to an entire cloud architecture that we're working towards in order to enable uh, you to really just work with a laptop with a very low bandwidth um, stream from the Internet and then use and leverage the cloud architecture to have that much horsepower behind your actual UI, and you're never pulling the data back down. You're actually working and interacting with the content on the cloud And that gives really global access to anybody who wants that content from that uh, basically the electro storage that we've we've defined for that production. And the only data that you need to shuffle around is to get the content up to the cloud and pull down whatever final files you need to render out.
1: Okay, so let's go back to that. So first thing is you have um, an artist workstation with Nuke running locally. There's a plugin on it. Your your plugin is Mm -hmm. being run. Is the computation for um, the rendering done on the artist's workstation, or is it actually pinging back to your hardware that you provide as part of the service in that So
2: there are a couple of different methodologies, and it really does truly depend on the production needs. Uh, So we can provide either architecture that goes to the studio And that would be what they could use and leverage for the processing of the content itself. Or what we're getting a lot of interest in is the idea that all the content would actually live on the cloud, and you're not actually doing anything on a local machine. The only thing you're doing on the local machine is actually um, using that as an interface to stream the actual UI from Nuke back down to the actual, uh, let's just call it a laptop or whatever low-power, low-bandwidth machine that you have. And then that way, you're able to then fire up and spin up as many processors are actually required in order to achieve whatever that production needs to do. Uh, now, that obviously has a lot of sensitivity due to security requirements, and those are all things that we are working towards with the say the biggest of the cloud providers. Um, but those are really the two working methodologies that it can either be using the existing render architecture for the studio or for the visual effects facilities using Nuke and the plugins that we provide, or... You can then move towards a, uh, an entire cloud architecture where everything is then integrated into that full end-to-end system in order to enable you to do the artistic work in that, um, in that UI as well as all the processing on the back end. So that really you don't even see the data. It's, it's really just um, as if you had an infinite amount of storage, an infinite amount of compute power behind you.
1: Right, so that software, just be Nuke, is actually running in the cloud. Um, all the nodes and everything are on the cloud. The only thing that gets streamed to the user is actually the effectively, uh, for lack of a better analogy right now, a VNC or virtual. Um, screen so it's actually not very much of data but all the processing all the heavy lifting is being done in the cloud and i assume as well um if you're using i don't know what you're using but if you're using something like uh, amazon s3 they even have a service where you can deliver the hard drive right and so it's not actually it's not actually a question of having to upload all that footage from your facility you can just um, as a uh, guy used to work with Ben Weber used to say, never underestimate the bandwidth of a FedEx truck. Um, take, take, <laughs> take, take, that drive, get it to Amazon yeah. and deal with it that way. So the upload is That's not correct. an issue.
2: That's correct. That's correct. And we're, we're currently working in collaboration with the foundry and with Google in order to enable, uh, what we like to think of as a really cutting edge solution. Um, to address the needs of a light field integrated visual effects environment yeah
1: and, and having used uh, similar type applications in the past it actually is really quite responsive nowadays the latency which used to be an issue when you're dealing with a mouse and a pen and a tablet um, really for the most part is a non-issue and that experience is very similar to using a nuke or an application on your local machine with the benefit of as you mentioned you can actually throw a heck of a lot more processors at it if
2: you wanted to. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's uh, it's getting surprisingly fast when you're looking at the evolution of these cloud architectures and that's really what's really enabling us to exploit that kind of an architecture.
1: Have you found though, and one of the problems in running um, certain pieces of software and not so Nuke, um, but other pieces of software is actually licensing of plugins in the cloud. There's rigmarole that you have to deal with, with that. Um, Have you accounted for that situation because, you know, many facilities have plugins they purchased or they've written and things like that? What's the situation regarding that?
2: So you're right. That gets very complex in terms of where are the license servers and how do you address those types of challenges. And those are all things that are getting considered. But it is built into a um, basically the, the, the release of that availability isn't yet defined. Uh, But they are being taken into account, and we are very sensitive to making sure that we're able to accommodate that existing pipeline and workflow and provide essentially a machine that they have full control over. Um, But the availability of that is highly dependent on a number of uh, moving factors. Uh, So for the first launch, we'll be able to show how this entire architecture can operate, and we'll be working with our studio partners in order to refine the pipeline and make sure it's truly viable for uh, their specific needs.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of moving parts. It's not necessarily your decision or Foundry's decision, but all the various plug-in manufacturers' decision, all the licensing. It's a great number of people with different, sometimes competing concerns. It's not an easy uh, problem to solve, but it is a a critical one that needs to be solved. Well, hey, I just want to really thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, I really appreciate it. I mean, this... This actually almost seems like sci-fi in a way to me. <laughs> and um, we've been thinking about this and kind of talking about this since we've been covering uh, pinoptic lenses and light field technology on FX Guide for a while. And this um, it kind of seems to be here now.
2: Well, it, it, it's it's been a blast speaking with you. And uh, you know, just be on the lookout for Lightro's uh, teleportation machine. No, I'm just, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, but we do love living in the sci-fi world of the impossible and uh, bringing this kind of a technology to a place where it is a reality and working with individuals like yourself and the entire uh, post-production and cinematography community to make this what it needs to be to uh, really contribute to production.
1: I can't wait to actually see some of the final images and look at the quality of it. I mean, I don't think one thing we didn't even touch on, we didn't even mention I think what it's 16 the stops of dynamic range.
2: Yeah, uh, because it's life field, and because we're uh, sampling in different ways in a traditional 2D pixel, we can actually achieve the full 16 stops of dynamic range. Well,
1: again, very much looking forward to checking out the imagery up close and uh, seeing the workflow in more detail. But uh, until then, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Really appreciate it.
2: Hey, thank, thank you, and uh, can't wait to see you on Tuesday at the, uh, the big super session.
1: Well, thanks so much for that,
0: John. And I've got to say, like, it's really interesting to see this technology come through because I, was, I wasn't I um, was disappointed, but it sort of dawned on me in the early days of the original camera, which is now going a couple of years back, um, that was like, well, the trouble with this camera is you can set the depth of field on a still, but once you've done that, it just looks like a still picture. Um, but I started thinking right then, what I really want to do is be able to have this on moving clips because then it could make a really, really big difference. And the company just full-on into high-end stuff now
1: yeah it'll be really again well it'll be interesting to see the footage but yes uh, one of my issues with the other camera too is really small images like how are you going to actually apply that to video and what you do it with a half a meter sensor is i guess how you freaking do it um to enable you to output either 4k or 2k is the end result um i do find it i think i mentioned the positive i do find it a bit amusing that the camera uh, the new camera actually looks like the original camera, but just <laughs> enlarged in size tremendously. Uh, but, of course, that has a lot to do with the technology that's under the hood uh, to create um, that original, I guess, planoptic master of sorts, light field master of sorts.
0: Yeah, but it is going the opposite way, isn't it? Normally you come out with a sort of really expensive professional one, and then over time it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And this is it sort of going exactly the other way in the sense of, uh, you know, it's getting more expensive because it's doing so much more. But it really is, you know welcome to the future kind of stuff anyway uh, really enjoyed the interview thanks so much for that and thank you guys so much for listening as I said before check out more stuff on training to break your career to the next level at fxphd.com and if you'd like to support us here at FX Guide please go to our Insider which you can get to off the main page at FX Guide one last thing to flag John um, just for people that don't know what's your Twitter if people want to follow you on Twitter Uh,
1: mine is John g-o-h-n-m-o-n-t-fx
0: and mine is just uh, Mike Seymour and uh, on behalf of Jeff, John, and myself, thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you guys next time. See you. Bye. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the contact us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.